Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 54, recorded on May 20th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. You don't happen to be doing this week's episode from your watch. Not quite, but I have been playing with my smartwatch, which I've dug out of the drawer, to play with Asteroid OS, which has reached version 1.0. And Asteroid OS is an alternative ROM for smartwatches that is Linux-based and completely open source. Yeah, you say Linux-based, I say it's based on some of the best. It's the Open Embedded platform, it's Open PKG, Wayland, Qt5, Systemd, BlueZ, and your favorite, Pulse Audio. Yeah, it's kind of like a proper Linux box on your wrist. It's very strange. Like they even talk about being able to run Docker on it. Yeah, that's my favorite part, is if you want to run Docker on your watch, go for it. It's pretty feature complete, at least in the screenshots, and the device range is pretty complete as well. It'll run on the LG G Watch, the LG G Watch Urbane, the LG G Watch R, the Asus Zen Watch 1 through 3, which I happen to have the Zen Watch 3, so I'm looking forward to that, and the Sony SmartWatch 3. So which in that batch did you have? I have the Sony SmartWatch 3, which unfortunately is the one that is least well supported. There's no haptic, and it's a little bit buggy, <laughs> which kind of sucks, but I, I used it for a day, and it was great. Yeah? It, it's... It's not as complete feature-wise as, say, Wear OS, which used to be called Android Wear. But I don't need those apps and things. All I need is notifications on my wrist, really. The only thing it's missing on my particular watch is haptic, which is a kind of crucial thing for me. I want it to vibrate so I can then look at the watch. And if they could get that working on my particular one, then I'd be all over this and I'd be using it every day. And is this syncing to your Android device using their companion app on your phone? Yes, which I went looking for in the Play Store and couldn't find. And then, oh no, it's in F-Droid. So <laughs> that's a kind of win. <laughs> it's actually surprisingly complete for a 1.0 release. It does support phone notifications. It has an alarm, a calculator, a music remote control, a stopwatch, a timer, weather forecasts. In addition to that, it's in 20 languages, which is pretty damn impressive for a 1.0. And it comes with an SDK with examples and tutorials that help developers get started. So I'm definitely going to throw it on the uh, Zen Watch 3. Yeah, and if you don't have one of the compatible watches, you can run it in an emulator. Um, I think even in QEMU, you can get it running. So that's pretty cool. Right, yeah, that is another way to play around with this if, if you don't have a watch to load it on. It's just really impressive they've gotten this far in a 1.0, and it just keeps that age-old truth alive in 2018 that you can put Linux on anything. And these watches are probably ripe for it. I'll be really excited to see where this project goes. Yeah, you might say it's one to watch. Oh, you had to do that. <clears throat> Speaking of fails, eFail was big news this week. <laughs> and uh, it really kind of got advertised as doom and gloom for OpenPGP and SMIME. In fact, the EFF went as far as saying, disable OpenPGP in your email client. Stop using it. Yeah, it was kind of alarming what the EFF said about it. But having listened to Wes and you talk about it on TechSnap, I'm a little bit less concerned now. There are fairly straightforward ways to mitigate this. Check out techsnap.system slash 368 for Wes's complete breakdown. There is some things to consider, especially if you're using SMIME 
or Enigmail, which is probably the takeaway for our audience, is Enigmail is somewhat impacted by this. The researchers released a PDF with all of the email clients and services that are not properly implementing a specific function of GNU PG called Modification Detection Code, or MDC. It's been a standard for almost 18 years, and that check would have prevented the automatic decryption of emails that Enigmail is vulnerable to. Now, you probably should disable HTML email for now, maybe disable Enigmail. The safest bet is continue encrypting your email. Just encrypt outside of your email client and decrypt outside your email client. Yeah, that is the best way to mitigate this, but that puts one more barrier up and it means that people are less likely to encrypt their emails, doesn't it? I mean, obviously there are people who have to encrypt them because they're in certain circumstances, journalists and whistleblowers, that sort of thing. But isn't the goal to have everybody encrypt their emails all the time? And this just makes it harder for people to do that. I don't encrypt any of my emails, and I don't think you do, do you? I have from time to time. I maintain a Keybase profile as well. I'm Chris Lass on there. Uh, I'll tell you, I think you're right. If you make it more difficult, less people will use it. And the The hardest thing about encryption is the math can be solid, but the implementation of the math can be flawed. And that implementation is really what makes the difference. And if you are really reliant on robust encryption, you have to also be very aware of how it's implemented. As an example, Signal is generally considered a well-implemented protocol. But the desktop implementation of Signal on Windows was recently discovered to have cached plain text chats that were outside the encryption scheme because of an implementation flaw. Signal, the protocol, 100% solid, but the way it was implemented on the Windows desktop wasn't. That's what's happened here with these mail clients, and that's a point that ProtonMail tried to make in the wake of all of this is, this is why we implement GNU PG encryption specifically like this, and they outline all of that on their blog, which we also analyzed in that episode of TechSnap. But I think it drives home the point that if you really are going to be dependent on this, you have to be a connoisseur of the implementation of the math. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Signal. It feels like that's where people are going for their encrypted communication is apps like that, a more modern approach to encrypted messaging rather than good old-fashioned email. Yeah. And I I feel that with each big story like this, a lot of people will only hear the headline and not necessarily dig into it and think mistakenly that GPG has got the problem in it or OpenPGP or whatever. Um, And that means that maybe they'll be less likely to use that kind of encryption and it'll push them more to these sort of centralized apps rather than the truly decentralized communication method that we've had for all these years, which is email. Yeah, there definitely could be that effect. The implementation size, right? The momentum behind OpenPGP and GNU-PG encrypted emails is so large. You know, there's a bunch of old school folks out there that that's how they've been communicating for a really long time, and they know how to do it right. And I don't think they're going to be switching away. So it's not like we're all just going to see it disappear. But I do think probably new people coming online today or people that are getting into encryption because all of a sudden they have something that they need to keep private, I bet you're right. They're going more to things like Signal. They're not going to Thunderbird with Enigmail and then setting up GPG keys and and all of that. I I doubt it. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily better, though. I think I I would probably be happier if they were. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear how much of the audience uses encryption for their email. So do get in contact, linuxactionnews.com slash contact. 
it appears after the GNOME development community received some feedback, they decided to roll back a somewhat controversial decision earlier in the week to remove the ability for Nautilus to launch binary applications. This caused quite a big stink, didn't it? I had emails, it was all over Telegram, it was all over Reddit. It was people saying, oh, look, typical grind behavior, removing features just because they think people don't need them. And at least this time they actually did listen and uh, they are bringing this feature back while they're not taking it away, I suppose. It is something that was a bit short-sighted of them, I think, to not consider that some people do need to execute scripts and binaries from their file manager. Or app images. Yeah, app images is a perfect example of that. And okay, I, I said need to. Yeah, you can open the terminal CD to the directory and, and run it that way. But most people just want to double-click job done, don't they? You know what was funny is the day that this story broke, I bought a game called Everspace off of GOG.com and downloaded it. And you know what it was? It was a binary file that I double-clicked on in my file manager, and then it ran me through an installer the day that the story broke. And this would have affected bin files, run files, shell scripts, .app image files, .desktop files, if you just have a .desktop file you want to execute. And I think the rationale for this was a couple things. Uh, number one, if they are removing desktop icons from Nautilus, it probably makes sense to take this functionality out as well. And then additionally, there's an unquestionable improvement in security. A lot of users that are going to get some cryptoware around on their system or something that runs as user privilege are going to be because they downloaded it and double-clicked that file and it executed. If you take that ability away from the users and say, no, you have to go through the launcher or GNOME software, then you're going to substantially improve the security of the desktop for your average user. I'm just not a big fan of building the Linux desktop anymore for the average basic user. I don't think that's our core demographic, and I think we make a very powerful operating system less appealing as a tool to people that do want to use it to get complicated jobs done. So I'm never really on board with that rationale, but I can, I can follow it to a certain logical conclusion. But I think I agree with you. It feels pretty disconnected from reality. Now, they did respond to the feedback and decided to halt for now, but discussions are ongoing about maybe removing this functionality in the future. And the use case that they cite, which we'll have linked in the show notes, linuxactionnews.com slash 54, is an obvious one. It involves somebody who has some scripts that they double-click on and run while they're working on other things. It's something you would see in any office anywhere in the world. And they apparently didn't consider this use case. I, I, w I, am, I am shocked by that. I'm, I'm shocked that, that they, they talk about, they use language like, well, nobody is doing this, and nobody should be running software that way, and nobody downloads a binary anymore. That's just not acceptable. Um, I, I, that kind of language is surprising to me. Yeah, it's just disconnected. But there's such a simple solution here. What happens on Android if you try and download uh, a random APK and install it, it says this install has been blocked by default. You have to go into your settings and change it if you want to install it. And why not just do that? Why not just have it buried in the settings somewhere that you have to enable it specifically? And that means that the average user probably will never do that. But power users, developers, whatever you want to call them, would just know to go in, change one setting, job done. Yeah, I think that's a pretty straightforward and almost obvious solution. And you could integrate that with GNOME software. I think that would be a pretty sensible place to put that. And it'd be straightforward. 
I, I guess I want to wrap this with, I do appreciate that they push this stuff forward because it's nice to have a desktop out there doing that. They have a responsibility in my eye that perhaps they don't feel they have. And that is the lion's share of the large distributions now ship GNOME as the default desktop environment. That as a Linux community is our foot forward now, is the GNOME desktop. And if they remove desktop icons or they remove the ability to launch binaries from the file manager, then it will be simply another extension that the distributions will pile on on the version of GNOME that ships. And it's going to perpetuate this issue where we become dependent on extensions and then they're going to put themselves into a corner when it comes time to roll GNOME 4 and they either have to fundamentally break all extensions to have a multi-process architecture or they maintain compatibility with extensions and GNOME remains a single-threaded desktop environment. Well, at least they have rolled back this change and it does show that they listen to the community. Yeah, it does seem like they're taking a steady hand. And maybe that is an acknowledgement of that responsibility that it's on so many large distributions now. And so they are more receptive and taking things a little slower. Dio.co slash action. Go there to that landing page, that there page, and that's DigitalOcean's way to get you $100 in credit when you sign up for a new account. DigitalOcean is infrastructure that you can spin up in less than 55 seconds. They have SSDs on all of their rigs. Depending on what you want, you can mix and match the resources as well. So if you need a lot of CPU or you want more disk, you can do that. And they have data centers all over the world. And they have some really great features too. I love this back-end networking stuff they have that they call private networking. I call back-end networking really because think of it like this. You can have one box that's public-facing, has a public IP address, and then you can have three or four systems sitting behind that on a private internal data center network that doesn't have a public address. But your machine that's on the public face could still communicate with it. And that's great for, like, backups or a database or if you want to proxy something. Or something I've played around with recently is a NAS system that's connected to a NextCloud instance running on a Fedora 28 cloud droplet. DigitalOcean has so many different options. You can deploy an entire stack or a base Linux system system and build it up. They have a super smooth, easy to use interface for pros or for beginners, and they have an API that's clean, simple, and well documented. Now, perhaps you're not a developer, so that doesn't matter to you, but it does mean there's a ton of great open source applications already written that you can use, integrate into your Linux desktop or on your mobile device and manage all of your droplets. It's pretty cool. And you can start with a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash action. That's do.co slash action. It's been a good week for gaming, especially on Android. Now, instead of needing a Steam Link box to stream your games from your big, beefy gaming PC, you can just install an app on Android and away you go. Yeah, as long as your PC is connected to Ethernet, you have to have a good connection on the PC side at least. And if your Android device is on 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, you'll be able to play games on your mobile using a Bluetooth Steam controller or any other Bluetooth gamepad device that you can get paired to your phone. And Valve says that apps could support up to 4K at 60 frames per second, but for the most part, you're going to see most games streaming to your phone at 1080p, 60 frames per second. Yeah, I wonder if phones are really the target for this, because it would kind of make more sense to use a bigger screen, like with a tablet or even with an Android box plugged into a TV, wouldn't it? Yeah, I am biting at the chomp, as they say, to get the NVIDIA Shield TV version of this. It's an Android TV box. It's 
wired in and it's got a very high-end processor, so it should be able to do 4K. Not that my TV is, but that's where I want to try this. And think about it. I could have one PC and I confirmed with Valve that it will run on Linux. I don't know if it does today, but their intention is to allow you to stream Linux Steam games to these apps. So it's not going to be a mutually exclusive thing to Windows. And it's not actually exclusive to Android either, is it? It is going to be coming to iOS, but we don't talk about that on this show. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think Apple is just, uh, they're taking their time. You know, they're really committed to gaming, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then again, Apple isn't the only one having App Store problems this week. Yeah, so some malware was found in the Snap Store and quickly removed, to be fair, and it wasn't that harmful it was a cryptocurrency miner so it pegged your cpu and wasted a load of battery life or energy didn't steal any information as far as we can tell at this stage but it is illustrative of a potential problem with how the whole snap ecosystem works i don't think it's necessarily unique to the snap ecosystem i think it's it's just one of the things you deal with when you have a open submission process. Traditionally on Linux, it's a system that's designed for and by system administrators. You have a group of small individuals that are choosing what software gets packaged up and blessed and then put in the repositories. And you as a user just assume that these people that have blessed the software have done their job and you install it. And it's worked really, really well for a long time. But in the world of Docker Hub and Snap Stores and App Images, anybody can create one of these and anybody could submit one of these. But I think the interesting takeaway from what happened in the case of the Snap Store is the conversation it seems to have sparked within Canonical after the fact. Yeah, I think the most interesting aspect of this is that they're going to be adding verified publishers, which means that when you go looking for a Snap, there'll be some sort of uh, checkmark, blue tick or whatever for developers that are considered trusted and so you'll know whether you're taking a risk or not with the snap that you're downloading and this seems to me to be an absolute no-brainer and i wonder why they didn't implement this from the beginning i wouldn't be surprised over the next couple of years if there's a few of these learning processes as they get into this for the first time and really do something at this scale there's just certain things you learn it's in a way it's like both Flatpak and Snaps have now had their rite of passage. Flatpak was being used on the Pirate Bay to distribute pirated Windows games with Wine and DOSBox or whatever wrapped up in them. And now Snaps have been used to bundle a crypto miner that poses as a system D demon. Uh, it's sort of, in a way, like milestones, everybody. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, it's like a coming of age almost. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of coming of age, it seems more and more distributions are dropping i386 support. No more 32-bit for you. Yeah, we've reported on this over the last few weeks, and now the latest Ubuntu flavor to drop 32-bit images is Kubuntu. You really do wonder what's going to happen with this. Are they going to drop the whole archive? There's a lot of discussion going on still, and we're going to continue to follow this and I've had people say to me that they're using loads of 32-bit Atom machines and stuff, and I think it would be a mistake to drop the archive at this point. But if they're going to drop it for the 2004 release, I think now is the time to prepare people and just say, look, stay on 1804 if you want to use 32-bit machines, and you've got three years to migrate off to another distro. Yeah, I agree. Now is the time to be having this conversation. they got to get this 
squared away. And I don't know if Kubuntu has much choice if the rest of Ubuntu goes this way unless they want to maintain their own fork of all of the 32-bit stuff. This is just the way the wind is blowing. So I don't know how much of it is Kubuntu saying we're dropping 32-bit as it is saying 32-bit is just going away. Well, that does remain to be seen with regards to the archive because if they do keep it around, then you will be able to use a net install or a minimal image to build up a Kubuntu desktop or any of the other flavors who have dropped 32-bit. That might be the way things go. I like the way the Kubuntu project's handling this, though. Uh, Valerie in the message says, look, we still have 18.04.1, etc. that we have to QA. We still have three years of supporting this LTS, even if we are dropping 32-bit support. So please keep helping us test. And I think it's good to remind people of that at this stage, regardless of which way it goes, there's still going to be machines out there for years running a version that's 32-bit today. Yeah, maybe I should dig out my 32-bit only laptop and do some testing. But uh, let's end with a quick one then. Ubuntu 18.04 is now in the Windows 10 App Store, so they are keeping up with the latest release there. It's not something that's going away, the Windows subsystem for Linux. Yeah, and as a point of clarification, you now have two entries. Ubuntu, which is Ubuntu 16.04, and then there now will be an Ubuntu 18.04 entry separately. So they're keeping both of them in there for the Windows subsystem for Linux. Yeah, it's almost like they didn't think that through, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm off to Texas. June 8th through the 9th is Texas Linux Fest in Austin. And if you're in the area and want to get some barbecue and hang out, join our Texas Telegram group, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Texas. We'll be planning meetups there, coordinating times. We like to keep it fluid, and that's the best way we found to do it. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Texas. Plus, I'll have the rover tracker on me the whole way down to Tejas. So if you want to follow me and meet up along the way, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of this show every week. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. You can support the whole network at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.